Before, I would have just said, arrogance, this is incredible, you know, blasphemy. Oops. I got oh, so yeah, wild. See, I, look at that. You're striking down your coffee cup in anger. I got so wild, I knocked my water uh, glass all over the floor. But anyway. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of On the Journey. I'm Matt Swaim along with my colleague Ken Hensley and we're with the Coming Home Network. If you don't know what we're about, come visit us at chnetwork.org. We're a network of people who have come into the Catholic Church from every background imaginable. I'm <laughs> imaginable. I'm a, more of a Wesleyan, Nazarene, hybrid type. Ken was a former Baptist pastor and uh, today we continue our series on Sola Scriptura. Ken, for those who are trying to keep track, where are we in this Sola Scriptura conversation. Well, it's going to take a few minutes to recap where we've come. You know, at, at first, Matt, I thought we might do one show on Sola Scriptura, maybe two, but the reality is this idea that Scripture is to function as the sole infallible rule of faith and practice for the Church, this idea, which was the battle cry of the Reformation, is really the foundational idea for the Protestant worldview or the Protestant system of thought. And you and I were Protestants. You and I were, were, were happy, engaged, serious Protestants for many, many years who then became Catholic. And in this series or in this show, really, um, the people that we want to address are people that are like us, people that, um, that are evangelicals, um, non-Catholic Protestants, and, and especially pastors, clergy. And so... We want to make sure that we're going in depth on the ideas that we talk about, because I really want to show the people who are listening, I want to show them the the line of thought, the reasoning that we followed to finally become Catholic. And so we're going to be sitting on Sola Scriptura for a little while, and from that we can branch off into all sorts of subjects. But this is critical. This is the important thing. And so yeah. we are talking about Sola Scriptura as the foundation of the Protestant system of thought or the Protestant worldview. Now, as an evangelical for about 20 years, Sola Scriptura was something that, well, just like you, Matt, every Christian I knew held it to be true. And that goes across the board, Baptist, Methodist, Nazarene, yeah. Pentecostal, you name it. This was, this was the underlying yeah. system of thought. Even if you came to different conclusions as to what Scripture meant, you at least agreed that Sola Scriptura was the starting point. Yes, this was the presupposition. That's right. In the churches that I attended, um, in Bible college, at Fuller Theological Seminary, in my years of ministry as a pastor, Sola Scriptura really was the unquestioned presupposition. And I have to admit, unexamined as well. Same here. Of Same my here. entire worldview. Bottom line, when it came to determining the doctrinal and moral teaching of Christianity, we looked to the Bible and we looked to the Bible alone. As John Calvin put it, um, these are Calvin's words, we hold that the word of God alone lies beyond the sphere of our judgment. Fathers, that is the early church fathers, and councils are of authority only insofar as they accord with the rule of the word. Now, that sounds good, but who's going to determine whether what the fathers say or what a council has determined accords with the rule of the word. Who's going to determine that? In that case, John Calvin determines that. 
Right. Yeah, it, where it's going to be you, Matt, it's going to be me. In that case, it was John Calvin. He's right. going to determine whether what a father is saying or what the councils have said accords with the rule of the word. He's going to be the determiner. And uh, to put it in Luther's words, Luther put it like this, and I'm quoting now, in these matters of faith, to be sure, each Christian is for himself, Pope, and Church. Which means that each Christian has the authority to... Uh, uh understand the scriptures from themselves. Not even necessarily authority isn't the word that we would use, the capacity to understand the scriptures for themselves. Or if we want to use the word authority, each Christian has as much authority as any, as any other. Yeah, you're right. Well, now, I could see even, I mean, way back when, I mean, talking 10, 20, 30 years ago, I could see that this right of private judgment, as we refer to it, the right of private interpretation, I could see that this had led to a vast number of Protestant denominations, sects, independent churches of all kinds. But truthfully, I don't know about you, but I was so used to the idea that Christianity simply existed in this fragmented, splintered state that it didn't even bother me. Yeah. I knew that the church had fractured. I knew that the Coptics had split off in the 6th century. You had the Orthodox splitting off in the 11th century, and then with the 16th century and the Reformation from that time on, just a multiplicity, in fact, multiplying more all the time, of new denominations, new sects, new uh, communities, new independent churches led by some new charismatic guy down the road and all that. I knew that they had come into existence, Lutheran, Baptist, Presbyterian, Anglican, Methodist, Brethren, Congregational, Nazarene, Church of Christ, on and on and on. And I knew that these churches contradicted one another in what they taught sometimes even on the most fundamental issues like how do we get to heaven and once someone is saved can their salvation be lost not or even how does somebody get saved in the first place right you know? you know how do we get saved and how do, and can we keep it i saw these contradictions matt and i viewed it as something that was unfortunate because the bible's always calling us to unity but i viewed it as something for which there was really no answer after all and this is how i would have put it at the time Christians, sincere, godly, scholarly even Christians, simply don't agree with one another on what the New Testament is teaching about, the, about this issue and that and the other. And since there's no authority on earth, no, that is no um, binding authority on earth to tell us what the truth is, to settle our disagreements, to define Christian doctrine for us, and to unite all Christians in one church, what could be done? Yeah, it was, and it so was simply the way things are. And and again, like you, this didn't bother me until I really started to drill down on this question of what the implications were of sola scriptura. Because I think growing up, because I grew up in a very Christian context, mm-hmm. and I had different friends who were Lutheran. I had one set of grandparents who was country Methodist. One set of grandparents is sort of Presbyterian, a little bit classier, you know, kind of situation. My family was Nazarene, and. I thought that most of this was just a matter of taste. You went where you liked the preaching and the music. And, and when when you start drilling down and start to realize that there are deep theological differences, then you start to ask questions, well, why? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and how is this resolvable? Is this resolvable? Yeah, and these are question, uh, questions that I would say most don't really ask. I, I think that for the vast majority, you're right, it's a good preacher, charismatic pastor, good music, the style that I like, whatnot. Um, it was when, for me, it was only when I learned that an old friend from my seminary days had become Catholic. 
someone that I respected very, very much, and so I couldn't ignore uh, what had happened in his life. It was only then that he and I began to talk, and I was challenged to ask questions that I had never asked before. Is Sola Scriptura true? Something I'd never asked. Is this how Jesus established his church? Is this how Jesus wanted his church to function? Everybody looking to their Bible? You looking to your Bible? Me looking to my Bible? Did Jesus, put it this way, did Jesus essentially hand the church a Bible and say, now study real hard and figure out what you think this book is teaching? And and, and that goes for everyone. And each of you can be your own pope and counsel as far as this concerned. Yeah. This is concerned. Yeah. Yeah. Is, Is this how Jesus established the church and wanted it to function? Or did he, and this is what my friend Scott was telling me and challenging me with, did he, along with the inspired word of God, did he give to his people a church, an actual visible society, a hierarchical visible society with the ability by the Holy Spirit to preserve the doctrine uh, the doctrine of the apostles in its own doctrine and worship and liturgy. The, the, the ability by the Spirit to preserve the substance of what the apostles were teaching and to hand that down through the centuries. Did Jesus give us that? That's what Scott was challenging me with, and these were the questions that were set before me. All right, so then, um, the question, and we addressed this uh, at some length last week, is Sola Scriptura scriptural? Um, there are a couple of different ways to ask that question, um, but I think, again, it's a, it's a good opportunity to recap what yeah. um, what the, the general working definition of Sola Scriptura really is, as opposed to, you know, kind of what the caricature of it is. Well, this is where we're this is where we're going to move. Then this is where we've been for a couple of weeks now, and I think we're going to be for maybe a couple more because this is what is most important to those listening to these shows who are evangelicals, Protestants of various stripes. Is sola scriptura scriptural? Does the New Testament teach us, to put it in the words of Protestant scholars um, Norman Geisler and Ralph McKenzie, does the New Testament teach us that the Bible Nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else is all that is needed for faith and practice. That's the most basic definition. You're, you're, you're mentioning definition. The definition is the idea that the Bible functions as our sole, infallible, binding authority for faith and practice. And, and, and Geisler and McKenzie summarize that as, as simply saying, hey, it's the belief that the Bible, nothing more, we don't need anything more, certainly nothing less, and important, nothing else is all that is needed for faith and practice. Well, as you and I began to look into this, and as I looked into it way back when in my life, it was easy for me to see, first of all, that the practice of the earliest Christians, and I'm, I'm referring to those living at the time of the apostles, certainly was not sola scriptura. They had the inspired writings, which were binding and authoritative for them, but they also had the oral teaching of the, the apostles, which was binding and authoritative. And then they had the decision of the church's leadership, the elders and apostles when it met in council. And I'm thinking of Acts chapter 15, where they were able to say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and, and to, to us, us. Yeah. To, as they sent out their decree. And with this, okay, so we've established there's this kind of three-legged stool functioning in the book of Acts of mm-hmm. uh, scripture, tradition, and the magisterium. And then this is where we kind of left the cliffhanger last week, which is, okay, that's all good and well, but what happens when the apostles are dead? And then what yeah. do you do? Well, that's you know? what we, yeah, that's what we began to dig into last week. What about the time after the apostles? I mean, everybody knows 
that when the apostles were still walking around this earth, living and breathing with the ability to pen inspired scripture, the word of God, with the ability to teach with the very authority of Christ, everybody knows that Christians weren't technically speaking, practicing Bible-only Christianity at that time. But what Protestants insist on is this, that what I believed, I mean, and what I believed as well, what Protestants insist on is that once the apostles were no more, once they had left the, you know, with a, this mortal coil, as they say, and, and gone to their reward, from then on, binding authority in the church lay in the inspired writings and nowhere else. Okay, Ken, here's the, here's the question that I didn't ask at the time, and you didn't ask at the time. So the apostles died out, therefore the inspiration was locked off. Says who? Right? I mean, like, what authority we were, were we trusting to tell us that that's when it ended? Um, yeah, see, when you, know, you ask, yeah, when you ask that critical question then, you know, that sola scriptura is not practiced in the New Testament, but it's something that kicks in when the apostles die, then the logical question is to say, all right, let's read through the New Testament and let's see if there's anything about this. I mean, are there any clues? This is what I did. I wanted to read through the New Testament looking for clues as to what the apostles thought about this issue, that is, when they had left the earth. And I'll give you the conclusion first. My conclusion was that, was I'll put it this way, if the apostles believed that when they had left this earth, what they had written down would function as the church's sole infallible rule of faith and practice, they sure as heck did not act like it. And they didn't sound like it in the things that they said. Most of them as you know, don't appear to have written anything. John wrote a few short epistles in which he twice, I mean, not once, but twice informs his readers that if he had his brothers, his druthers, isn't that how you say it? If he well, had in his, Kentucky, it's druthers, yeah. Yeah, if he had his druthers, he wouldn't write at all. That's what John says. Here's what John says twice. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink, but I hope to come see you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. John is not acting like someone who believes that when he dies, inspired scripture is going to function as the sole rule of faith and practice for all the for his spiritual children. And Paul doesn't act like that either, not only when he's talking to larger bodies like the church at Ephesus or Corinth, but also when he's talking directly to the people he's mentoring like Timothy and Titus. Yeah, and that's the passage that you and I focused on last week and that is the one apostle in the New Testament who actually does address this specific issue. How is his doctrine going to be preserved once he's left this earth? And, you know, interestingly and shockingly for me when I first noticed it, he doesn't say a word about his writings. I mean, right when we would expect St. Paul to have said to Timothy, take my letters, Timothy, make as many copies of them as you possibly can, staple them together, begin to send them out, begin to publish them. Right when we would expect him to say something like that, Paul turns around as he's preparing for his departure from this life, and he says to Timothy, or he speaks to Timothy of a pattern of sound words that Timothy has heard, several times the word heard appears, that Timothy has heard from him. And he tells Timothy to guard this pattern of sound words by the Holy Spirit that God has given him, and to entrust this body of doctrine, this pattern of sound words, this teaching he's heard, to entrust it to other faithful men who he presumes will do the same, will guard it by the Holy Spirit, and will pass it on to others. That's what he says. Guard the truth. This is Paul writing to Timothy. 
Guard the truth that has been entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, and what you have heard from me before many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. All right, now we might say, well, that doesn't sound—I mean, this is we're talking 2,000 years ago, and, and you know, how do we know he's going to remember things, and how do we know that this functions this way? Except, Ken, look at our own families. How do we know about our grandparents and their parents, and so on and so forth? Do we know about them from their writings primarily, or from the stories and the legacy that people have yeah. been formed in through them? I mean, that's this is just natural how we yeah. absorb yeah. information of previous generations in everyday life. I mean, even when it comes to things like learning how to fish. I mean, this is this is simple stuff. Yeah, and and you know what? I I think that the question is a good question that a Protestant would ask. Well, how do we know that they remembered accurately? and that the doctrines were passed down and preserved accurately. That's another question, and that's an important question. The thing I want us to see here, though, in Paul, is, is simply that what I found in reading this and looking through this is a mindset. Among the apostles, John, who doesn't even want to write, uh, many of the others, you know, who didn't write at all, and Paul, who did write and wrote a lot, and yet doesn't talk about his writings at the end, but talks rather about this idea of, you know, guarding a body of doctrine and passing it on and all that, a mindset, this is what I found, a mindset among the apostles that did not reflect at all what I would have expected of men who are preparing their spiritual children for a time when Scripture is going to function as their soul-binding authority for faith and for life. Yeah, and Ken, this is something, I think we're going to get into this down the road. I don't want to spoil too much, but Dave Arabum and a couple of other different writings Mm -hmm. about the church— uh, uh, Catholic Church's take on on Scripture, um, it's iterated a few times that we are not a religion of the book; we're a religion of the Word, and and I think mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. that's that's one of these major kind of differences. And 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 to understand what that means, you kind of have to look at what is meant when the Scriptures themselves talk about the Word of God. It's not usually a book that's being mentioned. No, it's God's revelation, which is communicated in several ways, can be communicated in, in, write, in the writings of an apostle, a prophet, um, and can be spoken as well. Yeah, yeah. And can be incarnate, as the first yeah. uh, chapter of John tells us. Yeah, and we are going to be reading from, uh, from Dei Verbum a little bit later. We are going to be reading that. The thing that I wanted to um, hammer on here, though, is simply this, and this is really brings us up to where we finished last week. Paul speaks in, this, in his writings to Timothy— He speaks as though he believes that the substance of his doctrine, the substance of what he has taught and what Timothy has heard, again, this pattern of sound words, he speaks as though he believes the substance of his teaching will be preserved in the church by the Holy Spirit and through a process that sounds an awful lot like what we refer to as apostolic succession. When he says, commit this to faithful men, who again, he presumes, will guard by the Holy Spirit what Timothy has given them, and they will hand it on to other faithful men who will guard it, who will hand it on, who will guard it and hand it on. Now, I was so used to thinking in terms of Bible only that this way of thinking, I mean, as it kind of dawned on me, this is the way the apostles are, this is the mindset of the apostles. It isn't a sola scriptura mindset. It's a different kind of mindset. When it dawned on me, it just sounded utterly bizarre because I was so used to thinking chapter and verse, you know, point to the verse, where is it in the Bible? I was so used to thinking that way. 
But, you know, the more I read Catholic apologists at the time, and the more I talked with my friend Scott, the more I read the New Testament, the more I could see that Paul's way of thinking here was not without context. It actually fits into a New Covenant kind of way of thinking. And covenant, by the way, is one of your friend Scott's favorite words, right? Yeah, and it's yeah, a, that's true. It, it, partly because he's from a Presbyterian back, for, background, yeah. and, and covenants factor so heavily into that theology. But mm-hmm. a, a covenant is a key word here in terms of understanding kind of the difference here between sola scriptura and understanding a church, um, as as yeah yeah as you indicate. The way Paul talks to Timothy, I think that it has a context. And so let's kind of back up mentally in the chronology of the New Testament a little bit and to sort of think this through. Beginning with God the Father. When God the Father wants to speak his most authoritative word to his world, how does he do it? Well, he sends his son. In many and various ways, right? He spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, but in these days he has spoken to us through a son. That's right. He didn't drop a book down out of heaven. He sends his son, endowed with the Holy Spirit, to present his word, to teach and to act, to live, to heal, to perform miracles, to present God's word. And you're right. Hebrews and to, begins oddly with those enough, words. not write anything down, yeah. which is crazy. Yeah. Okay, now move forward a little bit. Okay, that's what the Father did. What about the Son? When Jesus wants to ensure that his teaching is going to continue once he's left this world, risen from the dead, ascended to the Father, what does Jesus do? Well, he and, picks people. Right? (laughs) Which is wild. He does the same thing that his father did. As you mentioned, he didn't write anything except when he's sketching in the sand that one time. Instead, he he selects some disciples. He endows them with his spirit and his authority. He teaches them everything he wants them to know. And he sends them out to do precisely what he had done, to teach by word and example. And this is exactly what the apostles did. They went out. They preached. They founded churches. They entrusted their teaching to those they had ordained to succeed them in the ministry. Some of them wrote. Most of them didn't write. And most of them went to their eternal reward. In fact, all of them went to their eternal reward, trusting that the substance of their doctrine would be preserved in the church by the Holy Spirit, even those who wrote, as we see in Paul. So this is another thing that When I was at this stage, this is something that hadn't occurred to me. So Jesus says things to the apostles, like, as the Father has sent me, so I sent you. He gives them his authority. Um, So I would have thought, well, he gave them his authority to teach. But implicit in that is he gave them the authority to say that same thing to somebody else, right? As Jesus has sent me, so I'm sending you, right? I mean, he gave—this is— when you and I, you know, talk about this mindset that we used to have of how it must have just ended when the apostles died, we we forget that implicit in the promises that Jesus is making to the apostles that he's sending is an empowerment to do what he himself is doing, which it, it would, would include things like, well, what Paul was doing to Timothy, right? Yeah, yeah. and and so as a Protestant, I guess the way that I, I thought of what you're saying is that Yes, Jesus gives his authority to the disciples, and they go out, but the authority for them is to teach and preach, but then ultimately it's to write it down. And then once it's written down, that whole line of thinking ends. But 
What I'm trying to show here is that what Paul says to Timothy fits within this context. The Father sends the Son, endowed by the Spirit, to teach and to preach. The Son sends the disciples, endowed with His Spirit and authority, to teach and to preach. And it's within this context that what Paul is saying to Timothy makes sense. Paul does very naturally is not thinking about Scripture alone. He's very naturally thinking along these lines. And he says to Timothy, now I'm going to give you my spirit and authority, and I'm going to send you, Timothy, to teach, and you're going to do the same with the next person. And this entire pattern, I realized, reminds me of of something that Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 about the difference between the old covenant of the letter and the new covenant that he describes as being a, a covenant of the Spirit. Listen to what Paul said there in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, you yourselves, speaking to the Corinthian believers, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on your hearts to be known and read by all men. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tables of human hearts. And what was starting to kind of dawn on me is that the essential difference between the Protestant and the Catholic worldviews, at least as we're dealing with this issue of authority and the spirit, um, excuse me, sola scriptura, that the essential difference between the Protestant and Catholic worldviews is kind of analogous to the difference between the Old and the New Covenants. In in this sense, I don't want to push that far into a lot of different areas, but in this sense, Protestantism looks to the written record alone, to find the teaching of the apostles, whereas Catholicism takes the writings of the apostles as being inspired and authoritative, just like Protestants, and as reflecting their teaching, truly, but it also sees that teaching as having been incarnated, if you will, in the church the apostles founded, and that continued to speak with his authority, that that this church that continued to speak. It's sort of like this, in the Catholic conception The Lord Jesus ascends to the Father. He sits down at the right hand of power. He pours out the Holy Spirit into his church, which is his mystical body. He's the head. The church is his body. And this church becomes his letter to the world. As the Father sent the Son to be his letter, you you quoted from Hebrews, you know, and many of the apostles and prophets, but now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, as the Father sends the Son as his letter, the Son sends his disciples, his apostles, as his letter, and they send us, the church, as the letter of Christ, written not on yeah. tablets of stone, written on tables of the heart. And this is, so, this is such an interesting thing, and, and I know this is going to come up in a whole bunch of other different ways when we address everything from uh, you know, the sacraments to Mary to all kinds of things, and later topics that we'll address in other episodes. But this whole difference between Sola Scriptura being a doctrine that re- it's it, it's relying on something that's inscribed, whereas Catholicism relies on something that's incarnate. So the inscribed versus the incarnate, it's, it's two different kind of ways of thinking. Uh, but again, as you mentioned, the comparison between the Old and New Covenant, the Old Covenant is, well, Paul talks about it, the written code all the time, right? Um, yeah. Whereas this is, as you mentioned from Second Corinthians chapter three, you know, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, right? Uh, he's speaking of the Corinthians mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as they themselves living, being living 
the living word of God active in their own community. Um, it's a, it's a yeah. different way of thinking. Yeah, and by saying that, we don't denigrate in, uh, in any way the importance, the authority, the inspiration of Scripture. And we're going to see that in a few minutes when we read from Dei Verbum, so I won't go ahead with that now. If anything, um, just to cheat a little say, bit, this began to elevate my view of Scripture. Are you a cheater? I'm not a cheater. And if I would, was, yeah, I wouldn't yeah. tell you. Yeah. But I do want to point out that as this is happening to me, Ken, my estimation of Scripture is rising. I'm having a higher view of mm-hmm. Scripture as I'm discovering these things. That is very good. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, Scripture, well, Dave Irvin is going to say it, it's the speech of God put down in writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's a speech of God. But but realizing that that, that doctrine, too, could be incarnated in the Church, and the Church become... Christ's letter to the world. This is a different way of thinking. And here's, here's, here's kind of how I put it in different terms, too, the same thing. When we read the Gospels, and I don't think Protestant, if any Protestant would disagree with this, when we read the Gospels, Jesus surely seems to be establishing a church that will speak in his name and speak with his authority. And you referred to some of those phrases a little bit earlier on, you know, when Jesus says, He who, he who hears, hears you, hears me. Hears me. <laughs> right. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. Whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whoever sins you retain, they're retained. Peter, I give to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever you bind on earth will be... We're going we're to come back to all these themes again, one by one by one in later shows, I know. But the point here is simply this. You read the Gospels. Jesus surely seems to be establishing the kind of church that will speak in his name and speak with his divine authority. And then when we read on after the Gospels through the book of Acts and the epistles of the apostles, what do we find? We find a church. I mean, I don't think there's any way of escaping the fact that we find that the church that is actually functioning during the New Testament times, it is a church that is speaking with his divine authority. Again, Acts 15, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. I think of Peter standing before Ananias and Sapphira and them falling down dead. This is a church in the New Testament that is speaking with his authority. And And if it died with the last apostle, what was Timothy doing? Timothy must have ignored that letter. He must have ignored that letter. That's right, because when Paul tells Timothy to guard his teaching by the Holy Spirit, and he tells Timothy to entrust it to other faithful men, here's the point. Paul appears to be assuming, in line with these other ideas, assuming that the authoritative church that Jesus established, the authoritative church we see functioning in the New Testament, is the same authoritative church that's going to continue to function after he's gone. This is what Paul seems to be assuming in what he says to Timothy. It's going to continue. And so the difference, I think you said it just a moment ago, the difference between Catholicism and Protestantism in one way, can be stated as this. Catholics believe that the authoritative church that Christ established and that we see functioning in the New Testament did continue to function after the apostles died and is with us to this day. Protestants do not. And that means that there is a void of authority that has to be filled by something. Yeah, Um, and, and that's why at the time of the Reformation, I mean... Yeah, okay, you know, if Protestants basically, basically their point of view is that with the writing of the New Testament and with the death of the apostles, this church that you guys are describing, this authoritative church that speaks for Christ, died. It ended. And after that, what we basically have is Christians with their Bibles. 
And what I was coming to see, as someone who had done a lot of reading in Luther and Calvin and the Reformation, is that Sola Scriptura, this is what I was coming to believe at the time, Sola Scriptura wasn't something that Luther and Calvin had come to embrace because they had done some independent, objective, you know, inductive study of the New Testament, and they come up and going, wow, the New Testament teaches Sola Scriptura. They came to embrace it because at the time of the Reformation, they no longer believed in the existence of an authoritative church. The two are tied together. It was them seeing the sin in the church, in the hierarchy of the church, and them, them coming to question some of the doctrines of the church that led them to Sola Scriptura. And because without, it, yeah, I was about to say, without, without really researching it, my assumption was that the corruption that Luther and Calvin were fighting was the same kind of corruption or of the same character um, that would have happened right after the Apostles. Right, that that justified yeah, yeah. a split. That justified saying, "Well, we're not going to work with this whole model anymore." Uh, right, and then there's like a thin thread, depending on what your theology is, yeah. that preserves the gospel in some form. But it ain't the church. It ain't the Catholic Church, at least. Uh, but yeah. then that it, that makes that makes you have to like reorient your thinking on a, on a few different things because. That's not the way that God operates in Scripture with His covenants. I mean, just because someone doesn't make good on their covenant from the human side doesn't mean God breaks it on His side. So, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, if—and I'm getting into some arguments that we're going to be in uh, a lot deeper in, in later episodes, but what Davidic heir was so bad that God said— you know what? Never mind. The Messiah is going to come from the tribe of, uh, we'll say, yeah, Issachar or Naphtali or whatever. No, it never gets so bad. I mean, there's yeah. splits, there's division, there's exile yeah. and everything, but it never gets so bad that he says, you know what? We're going to go with Gad. It's going to be Gad's grandkid that's the Messiah. Yeah. It, it never happens. It would be Manasseh, right? And this does take us into other things in a way, but imagine that you and I are Israel. Are, members of the tribe of Judah living at the time, and we're living around Jerusalem, and Manasseh's the king, and things have gone to the bottom. I mean, people around us are taking their children, their firstborn sons, and they're burning them alive to Moloch and all that. It's just gone to the absolute bottom. He set up pagan temples everywhere. Um, The worship of Moloch is all over the place. And so I say to you, I say, hey, Matt, let's go out into the desert, and let's start our own Israel, (laughs) and we'll do it right. We'll and take, God will make a covenant with us for doing this. Yeah, right? We'll take the Torah and we'll go out there. I'll ordain you to be the priest and you can have me be you know, one of the singers in the temple or whatever. And we'll do it right. You kind of realize if you're sitting in the Old Testament mindset that probably the ground would have opened up at that point and swallowed us and up. Swallowed you whole. Yeah. yeah. So, But anyway, yeah, at the time, another subject for another day. But at the time of the Reformation... Luther and Calvin and the other reformers, they saw the sin, and, and it was bad, much of it, very, very bad, and we'll get to that too. They saw the sin in the hierarchy. They saw some doctrines that they thought, this is not right. These are not biblical doctrines. And therefore, they came to Sola Scriptura because if there's no church on earth possessing the authority under the guidance of the Spirit to settle disputes, to define Christian teaching as the church did in Acts 15, to preserve the substance of the apostolic doctrine, to pass it down faithfully. If no such authoritative church exists on earth, what option is there but to stand on the Bible alone? And so 
Bible-only Christianity I began to view as a default position that was come to because people rejected um, the authoritative church. And so this is one way that we can describe the heart of the difference between Catholicism, and it explains a lot. And this is where I want to get to Dei Verum just quickly as we kind of begin, begin to bring this to a close. This explained to me why the Catholic Church speaks of itself in, in ways and in terms that to my Protestant ears just seemed absolutely arrogant. You know, the Catholic Church speaks of itself as, as having this kind of authority. It just sounds pompous. It sounds totally arrogant. And I remember the first time that I read Dei Verbum, the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation from Vatican II, I was struck by how the document speaks of scripture and tradition and the authority of the church in ways that I would never, ever have thought to speak as a Protestant, in ways that no Protestant denomination speaks. And yet I was struck at the same time, Matt, by the fact that the words I was reading sounded mysteriously like what you actually see in the New Testament, where Scripture— It sounds like St. Paul, the way that St. Paul used to talk about his having been sent. You know? Yeah, and in fact, do you have the passage in front of you? I got chunks and chunks of Dei Verbum over here, man. I could build like a Dei Verbum <laughs> tower to heaven out of this stuff. There's, yeah, I invoked it earlier because we can spend want, 20 segments on Dei Verbum, you know? I don't want you to do that because then God might scramble the words and no one would be able to read it anymore. Well, I'll read this part because it applies yeah. so directly. Uh, it says, Hence there exists a close connection and communication between sacred tradition and sacred scripture, for both of them, flowing from the same divine wellspring in a certain way, merge into a unity and tend toward the same end. That's the opposite of what I thought Catholic tradition was about, by the way. What I thought was sacred tradition supplanting, replacing, and shoving Scripture to the side. Yeah, right? or you, yeah, or you thought of tradition as some other doctrines that have been secretly passed down. Whereas what it's saying here is that both f flow from the same divine wellspring, that is the revelation of God, and they merge together. So you have sacred Scripture, you have tradition. Go ahead and read. Oh yeah, there's more. Uh, oh, but oh wait, there's more, Ken. Yeah, uh, this is a, this is another great one. It says, um, uh, "Sacred Scripture, the speech of God, as it's put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit." What Protestant wouldn't affirm that? Um, and sacred tradition transmits in its entirety the Word of God, which has been entrusted to, to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. It transmits it to the successors of the apostles, so that enlightened by the Spirit of truth, they may faithfully preserve, expound, and spread it abroad by their preaching. And Ken, this reading stuff like this sent a light bulb off in me, because then I started to realize, wait, the Bible is sacred tradition. Like, the Bible is, yeah. it, it is tradition. Like, it literally written. exists because it was passed on. These books were passed on. These teachings were passed on. They were preserved in a book by a tradition. This mm -hmm, is not because mm -hmm. uh, you know, for for someone who doesn't think this through, you assume the Bible comes out of a void and just is there, and it's the Word of God because it is the Word of God. End of story. You know, uh, but this talks about how there is a process by which even the Bible itself comes to us, and that is a tradition. So Dei Verbum is saying to us that there's sacred tradition and sacred scripture. Uh, using those terms to mean the written tradition and the oral tradition, and how they both flow from the same wellspring, the revelation of the apostles, and they both merge together. And then it goes on to say sacred scripture is, I mean, the highest view of scripture you can have. Sacred scripture is the speech of God as it was put down in writing. And sacred tradition, meaning 
the doctrine of the apostles as it was known in the churches and passed down transmits in its entirety the word of God entrusted to the apostles. It transmits it to the successors of the apostles so that enlightened by the spirit, they may faithfully preserve, expound, and spread it abroad. Sounds exactly like what Paul was saying to Timothy. It sounds just like it. And then we come to this passage. I'll read this one. But the task of authentically interpreting the word of God, whether written or handed on, here's Acts 15 for you, has been entrusted exclusively to the living teaching office of the church, whose authority is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. This teaching office is not above the word of God. Please hear that. It is not above the word of God, but serves it, teaching only what has been handed on, listening to it devoutly, guarding it scrupulously, and explaining it faithfully in accord with the divine commission and with the help of the Holy Spirit. It draws from this one deposit of faith everything that it presents for belief to be divinely revealed. And you would not say of Timothy, when Timothy went out there and Timothy explained to his successor what the Word of God was and interpreted it for him properly and said, this is your doctrine, this is what you're going to receive and pass on, his successor would not have said, oh, so Timothy, you're putting yourself above the Word of God. No, Timothy would say, no, 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 no. I am serving, I'm, I'm, I'm passing on to you only what Paul passed on to me what I have guarded scrupulously, I'm handing it to you, and I'm passing on. Final paragraph. It is clear, therefore, that sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the teaching authority of the church, in accord with God's most wise design, are so linked and joined together that one cannot stand without the others, and that all together, and each in its own way, under the action of the one Holy Spirit, contribute effectively to the salvation of souls. And when I read that, before I would have just said, arrogance, this is incredible, you know, blasphemy. Oops. I got oh, so yeah, wild. See, I, look at that. You're striking down your coffee cup in anger. I got so wild, I knocked my water uh, glass all over the floor. But anyway, I would have said, this is pure arrogance. But as I was beginning to learn more and see things in a new way and see what Paul was saying to Timothy, I had to admit, wow, this is an incredible claim. And if the Catholic Church is wrong, well, it is the whore of Babylon. On the other hand, this sounds an awful lot like the New Testament. And to take it back, Ken, I want to just pull out this one quote because I think it's so important. Sure. From Dei Verbum, the Church's uh, dogmatic constitution on on, um, on Scripture. It says, This teaching office is not above the Word of God, but serves it, teaching only what has been handed on. That sounds an awful lot like something we opened this segment with. Yeah. John Calvin saying, fathers and, councils, fathers and councils are of authority only insofar as they accord with the rule of the word. The difference is, we think that the church is arrogant because it believes that the church is the measure of this, but we don't think John Calvin's arrogant for thinking John Calvin is the measure of this. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I'll just it's, let it, that question float out I'm there. I'm just going <laughs> to let it float out there. Like, it, the, the Catholic Church is arrogant for saying that it is, you know, the one true church founded by Christ, but I'm not arrogant when I say that my interpretation of Scripture is the one true infallible rule of Scripture. And at the time, you know? Matt, at the time, Matt, that these ideas were beginning to sink into my mind, I was still a preacher, Yeah, which means that I was sitting in my office every week, and I was pulling down academic volumes from Presbyterian theologians and Lutheran theologians and all kinds of theologians. I was synthesizing what they said— and I was deciding what the true doctrine was, and I was standing up in my pulpit, and I was saying, thus saith the Lord. Now, 
I didn't think of myself, I, I didn't think of this as arrogance, not, not at all. I thought of this as, well, what can be done? I mean, this is what we have. We have the Bible, we have prayer, we have study, we do our best. And yet I began over time to think, is there, no, is there nothing above me? <laughs> I mean, is there really no authority, no roof above Ken Hensley? Is it just me deciding? Is it really teaching? Pope Kenneth the first? And okay, am, if I'm a smart guy, does that mean there's no other smarter guy down the road who's a Lutheran or a Presbyterian? Or a holier guy down the road? Yeah, who's, who's contradicting me right now. Yeah. So, you know, this passage from Dei Verbum, as uh, audacious as it sounds to Protestant ears, also happens to sound a lot like the New Testament and the church that we see established and functioning in the New Testament. This is the church that Catholics say continued to exist after the apostles and continues to exist to this day. This is the difference at the bottom line. And, and there's so much more that we have to talk about. Oh, uh, now we got to throw the cliffhanger in for the next week so that well, we can we have to uh, let people about, know where this is going. Yeah, we have to talk about tons of stuff. But what I'm going to do next week, and I think it may even take two weeks to do it justice, we're going to back up and we're going to address in a serious way those passages in the New Testament that Protestants insist do teach Sola Scriptura. And by doing so, you and I are probably going to parade out all the verses that we raised as objections as we were figuring out this stuff, and we're thinking, no, but the but the all scriptures say this. So yeah, this is this is going to be basically us walking through our own thought process over the next couple of weeks, which is what we've been kind of doing and on the journey anyway. So yeah, yeah. Um, we invite you to let us know your thought process by weighing in in the comments. Subscribe to our channel if you like. Uh, please come visit us at chnetwork.org. We have lots of resources there that address this and that bring a lot of different voices to the mix. In the meantime, Ken, there's never enough time. We'll talk to you again next time. Good day, Matt. Thank you.